The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. All right, our scripture reading today is from Galatians three fifteen through 22. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Maggie, for reading for us this morning this text. Um, honest, Honest assessment question. Anybody glaze over? In the reading of that passage? Okay, so we are in a passage, a part of the New Testament where the Apostle Paul, by the way, that was not a commentary on Maggie's reading, which was <laughs> exemplary, but it's a passage where Paul is taking time to kind of get into what we were talking about last week, and that is doctrine, right? And he's unpacking how things fit together, the causal relationships between doctrinal concepts. And specifically, he's talking here about the function and the purpose of the Old Testament law, which to us, we may say, I don't know how relevant that is to my life. It's very relevant to your life if you are somebody who reads the Old Testament. You should be somebody who reads the Old Testament, by the way. Um, it is a challenging and rich part of the canon of Scripture. But for Paul's audience, for the Galatians, especially those who were converted from Judaism to Christianity, this was a huge question that was looming out there, was what is the function and the purpose of the law? And this was a question, actually, that was looming and, and huge in the lives of of any Jewish person at the time, they had this operative kind of working understanding of how the law was supposed to function in their lives. And so you, you just can't underestimate how big of a deal uh, this question is. And so we're going to talk about it, and I'm going to ask you to track with me, and we're going to think some, uh, and there's going to be plenty that you can go deeper on. There's a lot that I'm going to leave on the cutting room floor for the sake of time and uh, just being able to communicate some concrete ideas in a coherent way, because uh, there's a lot involved in what's happening here. But one of the things that Paul is asking the question about is this gospel of Jesus Christ that sets us free 
from having to believe that we are, uh, that we're the ones who control our, our, and establish our own righteousness before God. What is the function of the Old Testament law? What is the role that it plays? And so, and connected to that is the question, is there anything that can break our relationship with God, that can destroy it, that, that can fracture it? Is there anything that we can do that can nullify the covenant of God? And so Paul opens this passage by talking about a human example, uh, about, about a man-made covenant. And so he's making an illustration. He's saying, here's, here's how it works with a man-made covenant. It's the same way with God. And so I'm going to give you my own example of this so that we can kind of understand what he's, what he's talking about here. So the question is, is there anything that I can do to nullify the covenant of God? And Paul's answer is no. No, there's not. Because a covenant stands come what may. That's the point he's trying to make, is a covenant stands come what may. So a story. I have uh, a small three-ring binder. It's the half-size three-ring binder um, that was given to me by a woman named Alice, and she gave me this binder in 2004. Uh, And I met Alice under very unusual circumstances, uh, she came to the church that I was pastoring in Kansas City. We met in this uh, school, and um, she came to church one Sunday with her daughter, and when I met her, I could tell immediately Alice has cancer. She had the floral bandana, and she was frail, and she, she introduced herself to me, introduced her, her daughter to me, um, and uh, and she asked me if I would get coffee with her later that week. And so a couple days later, after meeting Alice on that Sunday morning, we got coffee together. We went to a coffee shop in town, and we talked, and she just told me some of her stories. She told me about the cancer she had. She told me about uh, the suffering that she had been through in her life that was more than just the cancer. This woman's story was one of the saddest stories uh, I know, and, and the suffering that she had been through and the brokenness uh, of a lost marriage and kids who had scattered into the wind, and, and she just wasn't, you know, and, and, and now she's facing this, uh, this, this cancer that was quickly taking her life. And in the course of that conversation, I asked her what brought her to our church. How did she find out about our church? And she was a relative of somebody who was a regular attender of our church. She said that's how she heard about it. But the reason she came to our church, and she kind of looked me in the eye and got a little smile, is she said, I'm here because I want you to bury me. And that was a defining relational moment right? We knew at that table, in that moment, who we were to each other. That I was going to be her pastor through the end of her days, which were not many. And she and I were going to walk through the remainder of her suffering together. And she said, I want to work together to plan my funeral. This was the first funeral I would do as a young, freshly ordained pastor. And I can't begin to tell you what a gift it was to me that the person who would occupy the casket helped me write the funeral. 
And we worked together and she chose songs that she wanted and scriptures and who she wanted to participate and where. And she said, I want the graveside service to be like this and I want us to release balloons at the graveside. And we had this whole thing and we talked through it and we planned this thing out in these last three weeks of her life. She lived three weeks after that coffee. And that was it. And I was with her a couple of times a week, got to know her family as a part of that. I was at her bedside when she passed. And I have this binder she gave me. She said, I want to give you something as a gift. What can I give you that would be a gift that, that would be useful to you, something you would like to have? And I thought about it. I didn't know. You know, I was, I, what a question to ask in that context. And I thought, well, I don't have yet because I'd not done any weddings or funerals. I didn't have a, a, a little professional, classy-looking book to put my notes in to do that. And she, she said, okay, well, you pick one out and... Uh, and let me get that for you. And so, so I still have it. still has my notes in it for weddings and funerals. If I've, if I've done your wedding, I had that with me. There and in the back, there's some flower petals from, from her service. And uh, by the way, I think Star Wars is on next door. <laughs> if you're wondering what that rumbling is. <laughs> Man, last time we were here, it was because of Spider-Man. And now Star Wars. Good gravy. Okay. Well, anyway... I could go on, and I, I, would love, I would love to tell you more stories about Alice, and maybe I will as time goes by, but, but today, the point I want to make is that guess what happened when, when Alice passed away, and I sat down with her kids, and we went to talk through the funeral service. I brought to them the funeral service, and I set it down, and I said, here's what Alice wants. This is what we established. This is what we worked on. Guess how much of that funeral had to change? None. Nothing needed to be added to it. Nothing needed to be taken away. Even though some circumstances had changed, what Alice and I put together needed no alteration. The event of her death did not annul what we had worked on prior to her death. This is the argument Paul is making when it comes to the covenant of grace and its relationship to the law, is that the thing that came first, that was ratified first, does not change because something else comes along after it. Not in a covenant. What's the covenant that came first? The covenant came first was the covenant of grace. It was the covenant that God established with Abraham. What came after that? The law. Does the law nullify the covenant of grace? No, it doesn't. That's the argument he's making. Just as once a covenant is ratified, things that happen after that may seem to change the circumstances don't actually nullify the covenant, so is the case with the covenant of God, with the covenant of grace that he makes with us. And so that's what this passage is talking about, is what's the relationship between the covenant of grace and the law of God which came after the covenant of grace? What is the law of God anyway when we talk about this term? When we talk about the law of God, what we're referring to specifically in a biblical context and what the reader would have understood at the time is you're basically talking about Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Talking about the Old Testament, uh, you're talking about those four books in particular because those are the four books of the Pentateuch, which is referred to as the law of God, that have the laws in them, right? And so the Ten Commandments are there, laws about all kinds of things, what to do with foreigners and sojourners and harvesting and theft and, and, and mildew. You know, there's all kinds of laws about all kinds of things um, in there. But that law was given, and it was given to the people of God, and it was given for a purpose, but its giving did not 
dispose of the prior covenant that God had made with his people. And Paul is saying in this passage to the Galatians and to us, it is vital that you understand the right order of things here. Because otherwise, what are we going to do? We're going to start to say, okay, the law came after the covenant, so the law is the most uh, current update, right? You see this on your phone and on your laptop, do you want the update? And it's going to change and nullify things of the past. It doesn't work that way with God. Thank the Lord, right? It doesn't work that way with God. That God makes his covenant, his promise. Then the law comes, and the temptation for us is to say, I reject then the covenant of grace because now there's this covenant, there's this, there's this book of the law, and I'm going to keep all the laws, and I'm going to find my righteousness there. And we've talked at length in Galatians about how Paul is saying, you can't find your righteousness in law-keeping because we're all lawbreakers. And so what Paul is saying in this is he's saying, look, the law was given and it has function and it has purpose. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Uh, What is the function and the purpose of the Old Testament law? But it was given after the covenant of grace. In fact, in verse 17, Paul says the law which came 430 years after. What is he talking about there when he says the law which came 400? What are those 430 years The law was given to Moses and to the people of God wandering in the wilderness 430 years after God established his covenant with Abraham. That's what he's saying. What was that covenant with Abraham? What did God tell Abraham? What was the covenant that he established before the law was written? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. What did it say? I'm going to read you two passages from Genesis that kind of summarize this. But this is the law, the covenant that God made with Abraham before the law happened. This is the thing that doesn't get nullified because the law comes. So in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, we read the very beginning of it. It says this, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in verse 17, 8 of Genesis, he says this, I will give to you and your offspring after you, and offspring there is singular, not plural, to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be his God the God of the offspring. And so before a single law was written down for us to keep, before a single law was written down for us to break, God established that covenant with Abraham, and it was an everlasting covenant, and it was this, that he would take us, that he would keep us, that he would love us, that he would be our God forever, and this would be an everlasting love and affection and relationship. That was established before the law came. And so what is the purpose then of the law of Moses? What's the purpose of your Old Testament? Why should it be a part of your reading? Why should it be a part of your life? That question, what's the purpose of the Old Testament law? You may not realize it. It's it's a huge question. That's a question that you could fill a library full of books written on that question. What is the function and the purpose of the Old Testament Law. It's a huge, huge question, a huge subject, and I want to distill it down into its most basic parts, some of which are derived from the text that we have in front of us today. Um, 
So I'm going to give you what I have five, five functions of the law. Uh, traditionally, people will say there are three uses of the law. They're, they're kind of folded in here. I'm expanding on them just a little bit. Um, but the first use of the law, which is why the law is good and why it's worth knowing and reading, um, is the law was given to restrain evil. So it's guardrails against chaos, right, and anarchy. Uh, verse 19 says the law was added because of transgression, right? And so on its most basic social level, the law is given to preserve and to sustain a society. We're living in a society. The law is given to preserve and to sustain. It's the antidote to anarchy and chaos. So that's one of the reasons. Second, the law was given to reveal God's character. In the law of God, you see the character of God. It reflects holiness. It reflects his holiness. So the law shows us what matters to God. If you want to know what God cares about, his law will tell you. He cares about purity of heart. He cares about integrity, uprightness. He cares about loving your neighbor and loving him and keeping things in proper order. It reveals his standard of absolute moral perfection. God is revealed through his word and the law starts with, you know, when Jesus summarized the law, what is the summary of the law? It's what basically distills down into two key ideas. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The Ten Commandments basically elaborate on how to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and how to love your neighbor as yourself. And then the more extensive Levitical law drills down even more, focusing specifically on how to do that in the ancient world after the fall where sin is at work in everyone everywhere, right? And so the law is getting specific about how to love God and how to love neighbor and how to walk in righteousness. So the law is given to restrain evil, to reveal the character of God. Third, the law is given to reveal sin. The law is given to convince us of our guilt before God. Romans 4 says this, the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression, right? So when you are, you know, uh, well, let's just use the example that most of us, I think, can relate to is... When the officer pulls you over and says uh, you were passing in a no-passing zone, what you can't say is, I didn't realize this was a no-passing zone. Why can't you say that? Because you have studied the law in order to get your driver's license. You were tested on the rules of the road. You know what the no-passing sign, you had to identify this is a stop sign, this is a no-passing sign, this is a crosswalk sign, right? You had to identify, you did do that, right? I did, I had to. I was real good at it. Um, got them all. And then you, you had to take the test and you had to prove that you knew what the solid yellow line down the middle of the road means. And so you can't say to the officer, I didn't know that this was a no-passing zone because you were tested on the law, you took your driver's test, and the law defines and establishes your guilt. If you're holding the license, ignorance of the law does not uh, excuse you from compliance with the law. So the law is given to reveal our law-breaking. 
it tells us, it establishes that where there is no law, there is no transgression, but where there, where there is law, now you know I've broken it. So fourth, that one's a hard one, right? That the law is given to reveal sin, convincing us of our guilt before God. This one is more of a uh, cultural use of the law. The law, was prov- the law provided a temporary sacrificial system for dealing with sin and atonement. So a lot of the law was a sacrificial system. Much of the Old Testament, in fact, outlines the sacrificial system that God's people would live by. And it basically entailed this, offering imperfect sacrifices, ongoing sacrifices, to temporarily atone for the ongoing sins of the people. And the image that this then created is that there were people whose job was to maintain a continual river of blood flowing from the altar because of the guilt of the people and that that death and that that blood and that ongoingness would foster a longing in people for a final, all-sufficient sacrifice to perfectly atone for the sins of the people once and for all and do away with the need for any further sacrifice. That there would be an ache And then last, the law reveals our need for Christ. It drives us to Christ. So if it shows us the character of God, if it restrains evil, if it gives us an understanding of our sin, it reveals our guilt before God. What it also does is is it reveals our need for a Savior and it drives us to Christ. Because the law reveals that we're all lawbreakers, then we know that our only hope of being righteous before God is to be declared righteous before God because of the righteousness of another, that it can't be our own, since the law reveals that all all of us are unrighteous on our own. And so in verse 22, Paul says this really, really strongly in this passage. He says, the scripture imprisoned everyone under the law. That's what the law did. It imprisoned you. It declared you guilty and left you no room to wiggle out of that. It imprisons everyone under the law so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. They don't act, they don't work, they believe. They believe in the finished work of Christ. The law calls believers to live by faith in the work of Christ. You still with me? That's a lot. I've just distilled down a lot of doctrinal big ideas. There's a book written on each one of these, many books written on this subject, down into these things, that the law has a function, and it's a useful function, but primarily what it does is it reveals to us, this is the holy standard of God, you don't keep it, you're guilty, you need a redeemer and a savior to make you righteous. You have to be declared righteous because you can't behave, you can't be righteous on your own. And so this is why the law is given, it's why it continues um, to serve most of those purposes today, the sacrificial system is, is gone. But the promise to bless Abraham's descendants and to bless all of the families of the earth through his heir was made before any of this law was written down. And that's, that's the thing we have to keep in order, is the promise that God made to Abraham's descendants to bless them, to keep them, to know them, to love them, to hold on to them, was made before the law was given. And Paul is saying the law of Moses does not nullify the earlier covenant. So this means that God did not replace his covenant of grace 
to call and to keep a people for himself by grace with a covenant of law. He didn't make that replacement. And so what this means for us is our hope has never intended to be in law-keeping. Our hope is always meant to be in the grace and the ever-keeping love of God toward a people who he already knows are lawbreakers at heart and that he would keep us. In other words, the law is sandwiched between the promise of a redeemer and the delivery of one. And that's where our hope is, is in the promised and now delivered redeemer of Christ. And so if you're somebody who wrestles with whether your standing before God is unstable, that God might change his mind, that you might get on his last nerve, that he might say, I'm okay with you breaking 49 of my laws, but when you break that 50th one, I just I run out of patience with you. No, no. His covenant was established to be a covenant of grace, and it was kept as a covenant of grace. And the law exists to demonstrate to you that you need that grace because you can't find hope in anything else. God holds everything together. He's the one who holds everything together. And so you can't make it all come apart. God is holding things together so you don't have to. And so when Paul's writing to this, these new believers in Galatia and they're trying to understand how things work, how, what is the function of the Old Testament law, and there's a group of people, false teachers, who are trying to establish and insist that no, if you want to be right before God, keep the law. Paul is saying that was never the point. That was never the way this was going to work. All the law was going to do was show you how you need someone to be righteous for you. And so God gives us his law because he loves us, because he wants us to know his character. He wants us to know what he loves and what holiness looks like for him. And so as we move into this new year, if you're somebody who's doing a read the Bible in a year plan, you're probably still on track. It's January 5th. You can do it. I believe in you. You're going to get into Leviticus and you're going to start reading about mildew laws and how to clean garments and things like this. And you're, you're going to start to waver if you're like me. I've read the first month of my reading plan of the Bible many times. And then I get into the mildew laws and I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm having a hard time tracking with this. Listen, if you're starting to read the Bible through in a year, and I would encourage you to do that, and there are ways for you to do that. Uh, you can use, there are all kinds of apps and online things. He Reads Truth, She Reads Truth, the Dwell Bible app. Um, there are all kinds of reading plans online. The ESV.org, um, the ESV, uh, English Standard Version of the Bible is the translation that we use. There's reading plans on there. You can find any, there's tons of reading plans on Scripture um, or uh, on, online uh, about reading the Scripture through in a year, in two years, just reading the New Testament, whatever. You can, you can pick yours. One of my favorites, by the way, is a um, uh, Bible in a Year for Slackers. I think is the name of it. And what it does is there's two days off a week. Um, so that's the slacker part, two days off a week. Anyway, I'm telling you this to say, read your Old Testament. Love it. Learn from it. It points us to Christ. 
It gives us foreshadowings of his coming. It prepares us for his coming. It carries so much good. It preserves us from chaos. It protects us. It reveals the character of God. It gives us language for prayer. And if you're like me, I need language for prayer. Pray a psalm. How do you pray a psalm? You say, dear Lord, and then you read a psalm through a verse at a time and contemplate and think. And if you're a journaler with a pen or a pencil in hand and a journal, and write and meditate and reflect on the law of God. It gives us language, beautiful language. We even read some of it this morning in our confession of sin from Psalm 51 where David is caught in a sin with Bathsheba and he says those words, those, those beautiful words, create in me a clean heart. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Prayers that rise up, inspired by the Holy Spirit in the canon of Scripture that we can use to pray and to commune with God and to know His heart and to understand the gravity of His love and His holiness. You know, we live in a time right now that has... It happened. It happened. Would somebody go and ask them to... Hey! That was quick. This music... Sorry. I had a feeling that was going to happen. Man, I just lost my groove. Okay, we live, we live in, I'm wrapping up, by the way. I'm almost done. Uh, we, we, we live in an era that, that, that wants to say God is a certain way. We want to say God is loving. God is uh, for us. And all these good things, which are true, but we say them without a concept or an understanding of God also being holy and God being of the sort that is not saying, I will condescend to become more like you in order for us to relate to each other, rather than I will raise you up to a standard of righteousness that is like me. And one of the things that we lose in that process of saying, because what we end up just distilling that down to is in order for God to be loving, he just has to be cool with everything and not judgy. That's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is a holy fire who burns with holiness and strikes fear and terror into anyone he appears to in any modified slight form. And he awakens a holy fear in them because why? Because he is holy and he calls us to that. And the Old Testament gives us insight into what that character and that part of God is like and I don't want us to lose that because God is to be worshipped and feared as a holy God he gives us the, the Old Testament he gives us the law so that we can know him and there's nothing that makes that expire and nothing that makes that go away. His covenant promises are built not on us trying to make sure we're perfect. It's built on sending an heir who would be perfect for us. And so our only hope from the beginning to the end was faith in Christ who would keep the law perfectly for us. And this is exactly what has happened. So when Alice and I prepared her funeral together and then when she died... No other plan came along and replaced it. The original agreement needed no change, even though the circumstances changed. So it is with God's covenant of grace in Christ. The follower of Jesus lives with an eternal hope and nothing can break it.
And the hope rests on an ancient promise that was established before any of us were born. One that was made before the law was given. And it holds. As sure as Christ is risen, it holds. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. Uh, May we be people who are challenged by it. Uh, People who want to be challenged by it. People who want to understand that we have much to learn about your character and your holiness and your mercy and your sovereignty. Uh, give us an appetite for that, a hunger for that. Thank you for, your, for, your, for the book of Galatians, which labors to help us understand the proper order of things, that the law did not replace grace, but the law just showed us how much we needed it. And we're thankful for your kindness to us and for the gift of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.